Well, welcome to our evening worship service. We're glad that you're with us. Uh, we will begin with our call to worship. Would you stand with me? Our call to worship comes from Psalm 105, verses 1 through 4. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearers, the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Let us pray. Father, we have come here to worship you, and you are seeking those who will worship you in spirit and in truth. And so we ground ourselves in your word, and by your spirit, sincerely, we offer our hearts to you and ask that you would receive our worship. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Our opening hymn is number 55, To God Be the Glory, number 55.
may be seated. Tonight's Old Testament reading comes from the 43rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. We'll be reading Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. Beginning in verse 1, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And this ends the reading of God's word. If you would take your bulletin in hand, you'll find in our order of worship a corporate confession of sin. We will... Pray those words aloud to the Lord to confess our sins corporately. After that, we'll have a moment of silence in which we can silently confess our sins or bring to God whatever's on our hearts and bring our burdens to Him because He cares for us. So using that corporate confession of sin, let us pray together. Father, Your Word tells us that You created us for Your glory. Yet we have sinned and fallen short of Your glory. You created us in your image, yet we have sought our own sinful paths. We confess our sin. Forgive us for the evil things that we have done. Forgive us for the good things that we have left undone. We give thanks that you offer us your forgiveness and acceptance as a gift of grace through our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Father, we pray with King David, creating us a clean heart,
O Lord, and renew a right spirit within us. Against you and you only have we sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Father, we thank you that you are a forgiving God. We thank you that you choose not to remember the sins that we can't forget. We thank you that you promised, promised to cast our sins behind your back and remove them as far as the east is from the west. If we simply come to you through the Lord Jesus Christ by faith in him. And so this is how we come to you tonight. I want to pray for your people on this Thanksgiving week uh, that you would help us to have grateful hearts. Um, it's hard to be grateful sometimes. It's so easy to be ungrateful. And uh, we're, of course we know in this fallen world it's marred by sin and pain and war that we have plenty of things that we can gripe about tonight. But we also know that you've created us for your own glory that you've redeemed us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this swells our hearts with gratitude. And we offer thanksgiving is not a once-a-year thing for us. It's an everyday thing for us. And so we give you thanks. I want to pray for your people here tonight that you would meet their needs, whether those needs be physical or emotional or spiritual. For we all have spiritual needs. I pray that you, in your own mysterious way, by the working of your spirit, meet those needs tonight that you would do business with your people, that you would draw near to them as they draw near to you, uh, that we would leave this place feeling that whatever burdens we had weighing us down, that we've cast them off at the feet of Jesus, and that we would leave this place rejoicing in the glorious hope of our blessed Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. As we have confessed our sins, we hear now God's assurance of pardon from Psalm 103, verses 8 through 14. Hear what God says to you. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. God's word says it, and he calls us to believe it. If you've confessed your sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has removed your sin, your guilt, and shame as far as, as the east is from the west. In other words, his forgiveness knows no bounds. So receive it this evening and carry it with you this week. We're now going to receive our offering, and as we do so, we're going to sing hymn number 501, which is Just As I Am Without One Plea.
We're going to sing that last stanza one more time. And I'm kidding, that was a joke for the Baptists, or former Baptists. <laughs> I, did not, I intentionally did this as the middle hymn, so no one would be even tempted to think that. But, um, uh, our New Testament reading for our sermon text is Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33. And I'm going to be giggling to myself the whole sermon now. It's great. Matthew 14, beginning in verse 22. Hear God's word. Immediately he, that being Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. And came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And this ends the reading of God's word. Spiritual depression, its causes and cures. Uh, so that big idea is, okay, we all go through times in our lives where we're slumping spiritually, where we're not as close to God as we once felt we were, or we're entangled in some sin that's keeping us away from enjoying God's presence in the way we once did. And the question we've been asking is, what are the causes of these slumps? And how can we, how can we find cures for these slumps? So I'm spending three weeks, this is week two, talking about the subject of assurance. Assurance of salvation, assurance of forgiveness, assurance of God's love for us. Last week we talked about the need to apply our faith in our day-to-day lives. We looked at another story of Jesus in the boat that time during a storm, asking the disciples, where is your faith? And we said he was asking them, he was saying to them, you have faith, but where is it? Why aren't you applying it to the situation that you're in currently? And often when we struggle with assurance and we 
go through slumps. That's the exact same thing we need to do. We need to apply our faith to the situation that we're presently facing. Now this week, the disciples are on a boat again in a storm, but Jesus, rather than being on the boat, he comes to them walking on the water. And Jesus, Jesus isn't the only one who walked on the water in the story. Peter walked on the water too. But Peter began to sink. And this time Jesus doesn't say, where is your faith? He says, oh you of little faith, why did you doubt? So Peter started by believing, but then he started to doubt. And that's what I want to talk about tonight, our doubts. You know, John Owen said, I've always remembered this, this is a paraphrase, but in one of his books he said, the biggest problem a pastor faces is trying to convince non-believers that they aren't saved and trying to convince believers that they are saved because we're always struggling with doubt. So Lloyd-Jones in his book says, in this story with Peter, God is calling us to strong faith that doesn't doubt, a faith that is full of assurance, strong assurance. So two points to talk about that. What keeps us from having that type of assurance and how can we get it? So number one, what keeps us from having assurance? Here was the answer for why Peter doubted. Verse 30. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Peter was looking at the storm. He was looking at the wind. He was looking at the waves. This is showing us that there are circumstances in life that will draw out our doubt and unbelief. And there are often moments when you feel like you're sinking, when you feel like you're not in control, when the waves are beating against the ship, proverbially speaking. Now, this happened to Peter all the time if you read the Gospels, and it can happen to us all the time. If you look carefully at the Gospels, I got this from uh, Thomas Goodwin, reading his book, The Heart of Christ. He made this really profound point. He said, if you carefully examine the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders all the time for their sin and hypocrisy. But virtually the only thing you'll see him rebuke the disciples for is their lack of faith. It's when they're failing to believe. They believe, but they doubt. They believe, but they don't believe. That's their perpetual condition. And it's not just the disciples' condition. It's all Christians face this. In Mark 9... Jesus encounters the father of a demon-possessed boy who says to Jesus, if you can help me, you can make him clean. You can make him whole. And Jesus says, if, if you can. All things are possible to those who believe. And then that man uttered those famous words back to Jesus. I believe. Help my unbelief. John Calvin said from that text, what we can learn is that we are all, as believers, partially unbelievers. We believe and we need help with our unbelief. One of the most striking things I read, I've read in the works of Calvin, is that John Calvin has noticed this staunch, devoted, never wavering Christian. You know, he, he goes to Switzerland. He's French. He goes to Switzerland to become a pastor. His own session, essentially, kicks him out of the church and he goes off into exile for a while, but then they beg him to come back because they realize the church was not going to flourish without his leadership. And you know, the legend has it that the day that he came back, he picked up and preached from the very same text he had left off from the last time he was there. 
He just went right back, plugging along through whatever the book of the Bible he was preaching through. He was so staunch. But Calvin's wife died, relatively young. And in a letter to a a friend had asked him how he was doing, and he wrote this in a letter back to his friend. And he was talking about himself. He said, Unbelief is so deeply rooted in our hearts, and we are so inclined to it, that not without hard struggle is each one of us able to persuade himself of what all confess with the mouth, namely, that God is faithful. See, Calvin's unbelief is wrestling with, can I really believe that God is faithful? Calvinists talk all the time about the doctrine of total depravity. That doctrine doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be by any means. But it does mean that sin has its tentacles like deep down in our souls. Sin is not just what we do. It's a part of who we are. It's what causes us to do what we do. And one preacher defined total depravity in this way. He said, total depravity means if sin were blue, you would be blue all over. It affects every part of you. It affects your mind. It affects your heart, your will, your emotions. Everything. And so Christians, we receive the Spirit... And we receive a new nature from the Holy Spirit. But the old nature, the old man, as the King James Version puts it, it's still there. It still wants to assert itself. It still wants to question God. It still wants to doubt. It still wants to doubt so far as to say, is God really faithful? You read Romans 7 sometime. You'll see how the Apostle Paul dealt with this in his own life. Again, as staunch a believer as you could possibly imagine. He endured beatings. He endured imprisonments. He endured persecution, being abandoned. All these things for Christ. Yet when he looked inside of his heart, he was just a wretch. He was messed up and he was honest about it. He wanted us to see it so that when we saw it in ourselves, we wouldn't be surprised. Romans 7.23, he says... I see in my members, that's in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin and death that dwells in my members. He's saying he was, like the song said, he's tossed by conflict and doubt, strivings within, without, without. Like he wanted to do good and then he would find himself not doing good. He wouldn't do the things he wanted to do and the things he, he didn't want to do, those are the things that he would do. That's how Paul describes himself. And so verse 24 of Romans 7, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I want out of this. And that metaphor that he uses of the Christian life feeling at times like you're trapped in a body of death, it's so vivid. And I realized how vivid it was listening to a sermon by John MacArthur years ago. This is what he said body of death there means. It has been reported that near Tarsus, where Saul was born, there was a tribe of people who inflicted a terrible penalty upon murderers. When a person murdered someone, it was their custom to, custom to fasten that dead corpse to the murderer, face to face, nose to nose, chest to chest, thigh to thigh, foot to foot. That was the punishment until the decay of the dead body had killed the murderer. So tight were the bonds that he could not free himself. And a few days is all it took for the corruption of death to pass into the living and take his life. And Paul looks at himself and he sees that in his own case. 
and senses that he is face to face, chest to chest, thigh to thigh, to something that is dead and corrupt and killing, and cries, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? This thing we call the old man, the old nature. Paul says it's like having a dead body strapped to you. If you feel like you're trapped in a body of death from time to time as a Christian, you're not in strange company. The uh, the Apostle Paul felt it. Peter felt it. John Calvin felt it. Toby Keith, the country music singer, asked Clint Eastwood uh, how he stayed so active and young at his age. You know, Eastwood is 93 now, which is just crazy for me to think. But Eastwood's answer was, I don't let the old man in. Toby Keith wrote a song about that. But so much of our doubt and our lack of assurance comes from the fact that we do let the old man in. He's there, and we can't seem to get rid of him. That's why we doubt. And nothing activates the old man like bad circumstances. Like Peter, here is looking at the wind and the waves, fearing for your life. He'd forgotten the fact that Jesus commanded him to walk on the water, and that he's actually been successfully walking on the water. See, none of that matters when doubts and panic start to creep in because the old man likes to come in and he likes to take over. That's what, keeps, that's what causes our lack of assurance. Now here's the second point. How can we get that assurance back when we lose it? When our passage in verse 26, it says, When the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. By the way, if you, if you make fun of people who say they believe in ghosts, here's the apostles, it's a ghost. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. So notice a key word there. There's a lot about sight. That's something we talked about this morning. It says the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water. And people was walking to Jesus, but he saw the wind. You could say Peter was looking at Jesus, but then he turned his eyes away from Jesus toward the wind. That's the classic preacher trope. Or you can say Peter was looking at Jesus and the wind at the same time. But the wind and the waves were clouding his vision. For the believer, it's not usually that we completely look away from Jesus. But boy, even when we're looking at him, there are all kinds of obstacles that get in the way of that sight. And that's where Peter is. Whether it's the wind, or a bank account, or a bad diagnosis, or a mirror, we look at things that cloud our vision. That's why Robert Murray McShane said, for every look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. You know I love a good quote? That's up there. Probably top three. For every look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. That's the rule. And you could state it a number of ways. For every look you take at your sins, take ten looks at Jesus. For every look you take at your guilt, take ten looks at Jesus. For every look you take at your circumstances, take ten looks at Jesus. For every look you take at your doubts, Take ten looks at Jesus. For every look you take at the culture, the world, what it says, what it says about you, 
Take 10 looks at Jesus. Boy, that dramatically changes, changes your scrolling habits on that little supercomputer we carry in our pockets. You have every reason to doubt yourself, but you have no reasons to doubt Jesus. That's why for every look at you, you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. Now, I heard the uh, business guru, Simon Sinek, talking about the puerperal fever, which was a plague, an outbreak that happened in the late 17s, early 1800s in the colonies, in America, in Europe. During that time, 70 to 80% of women who were giving birth to children were dying. It was called the black death of child, the childbed. And so the great question that all the physicians and all the philosophers and all the scientists were tasked with was, what is causing this? Something's got to be causing this. And there were all kinds of theories. When 1843, a doctor named Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was the father of the Supreme Court Justice, Oliver Wendell Holmes, proposed a theory. His theory was that the doctors themselves were the ones who were spreading the disease that was calling these, causing these deaths. What was happening was they were doing autopsies with the same tools they used to operate on pregnant women. And they weren't sterilizing their tools. But see, the doctors ignored Holmes for 12 years. Why did they ignore him? Because they didn't want to admit that they were the problem. If he's right, we're the problem. But after 12 years, they finally gave in and said, this guy might be onto something. And Simon Sinek took a a moral from this story, basically, he said, only after men who claimed to offer the solution accepted that they were part of the problem did puerperal fever all but disappear. And I tell that story because with the subject of assurance of salvation, we are the problem. God is not the problem. Jesus is not the problem. We are the problem, but not in the way that you might think. The problem isn't that you're too bad. The problem isn't that you've done such heinous things that God could possibly, you know, never possibly forgive you. It's not that you just don't have faith, generally speaking. The problem is that you've forgotten that your salvation ultimately isn't about you. It's about God, and it's about His glory, and it's about His work, and it's about His grace. Your salvation doesn't rest on the strength of your faith, though you have little faith. It rests on the object of your faith. How strong is the object of your faith? If Jesus is the object of your faith, you could not find a stronger one. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the strength of Christ who saves you by faith. You're not saved because of your hold on Jesus. You're saved because Jesus has a hold of you, and he promises that he won't let you go. Now Martin Luther said, the worst thing Satan, the worst thing the devil can do to you is come and come to you and, and whisper in your ear, you're a terrible, terrible person. You're facing terrible, terrible circumstances. God must hate you. And he says, if, you know, if Satan says something that heinous to you, you know what you can say right back to him? You're absolutely right, devil. I'm a terrible person, and I'm facing terrible circumstances. But glory be to God, Jesus came to save terrible people who were going through terrible circumstances. And he says that's how you take the devil's sword and you chop his head off with it. He has nothing. He has nothing on you. 
If Satan were to throw you his gun and you turn it around and pull the trigger, guess what comes out? Nothing. Blanks. He has no weapon against you. That's why the Bible says no weapon formed against you will prosper. That's why it says greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Because Christ, as the book of Colossians says, when he came, he disarmed principalities and powers. He took all that they had against us and he nailed it to the cross and when Jesus died, it disappeared. It all vanished. And so, when that old man is trying to come in, that old nature is trying to come in and, say, and, and whisper what the devil would whisper, you're a terrible person. What are you supposed to do? For every look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. Take your eyes off yourself and put your eyes on Christ. I mentioned John Owen earlier, and he's one of the best examples of this I've ever seen. Because Owen, for those of you who aren't overly familiar with him, I took uh, an elective class on him in seminary and had to read something like 1,300 pages of his writing. And I had to get his, his works. His complete works stretch out at books farther than my arms can spread. And, and I marvel at this man because he lived in the 1600s. And so he likely wrote most of that by candlelight with a quill pen. And I'm like, I can't, I have a computer. And I can't produce this amount of material. That he was an amazing man. And I say he probably wrote most of it at night because he had 11 children. But 10 of them died in infancy. This was, you know, before the puerperal fever outbreak. And we don't know the cause of the death, but he and his wife lost 10 babies after their birth. They only had one child who lived to adulthood. She was a young adult, probably in her early 20s, when she died of consumption. And then Owen's wife also died years before him. And he lived through all of that. Plus, he lived through the English Civil War. He was a chaplain in Cromwell's army. And he saw thousands of men he ministered to killed. He saw friends like John Bunyan put in jail for simply preaching the gospel. And all the while, he's preaching week in, week out. He's performing funerals week in and week out. And I, I just remember when I found out about his circumstances, I just thought to myself, how on earth did he do it? How did he do it? And then I read a book of his that was one of, if not the very last book he wrote in his life. And it, is, it was titled, Meditations and Discourses on the Glory of Christ. Over 200 pages Owen unpacks the glory of Christ, page after page after page. Christ's glory as the second person of the Trinity. Christ's glory in humbling himself. His glory as our mediator and redeemer and savior. Christ's glory in the Old Testament. Christ's glory in the New Testament. Christ's glory in the church. And in that book, he asks the question, how can the soul be recovered from spiritual decay? And his only answer was, through seeing the glory of of Jesus Christ. Year after year after year, affliction, pain, suffering after suffering after suffering, Owen was compiling enough on the glory of Christ to write a book about it better than I could ever imagine writing because that's what sustained him. For every look he took at himself and his circumstances, he took ten looks at Christ. And so, I just want to say tonight, remember that you're 
the cause of your own doubts. You're the cause of your own lack of assurance, but not in the way that you may have thought. Not because you're so bad, but it's because you're taking your eyes off Christ and you're putting them on the waves. You're putting them on your circumstances. If there are things in your life that are producing doubts that you control, that you can control, get rid of them. Some things you can't control, and you just have to keep looking and looking and looking. I always love that uh, Barry Hanna, great Mississippi author. You know, he said, an author, an artist is someone who's just, they stare like a cow. They find something to look at, and they just look at it and look at it and look at it until they get something beautiful out, out of it. And that's what we're called to do with Christ. So remember your primary commitment in the Christian life is to follow Jesus, to keep coming to him and coming to him and coming to him. Not having all the answers, not having everything figured out, but you just keep coming to him. Because by following Christ, you can make a commitment. You know, you've already, I say this all the time, but you know, when you become a Christian, you say the worst thing about yourself anybody could ever say. And that's your wretched sinner without hope saving God's sovereign mercy. But also at the same time, you confess that you find hope that he is willing to save wretched sinners in his sovereign mercy. So what we need to do is basically what Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. told the doctors. He said, burn your clothes, get rid of your filthy instruments. And see, we think our dirty clothes and our filthy instruments are our bad works. They're our sins. They're not. Jesus is taking care of them. Our, our clothes that we need to burn and our dirty instruments are our self-salvation projects. They're the, every instance of us trying to hope in ourselves, every instance of us seeking after self-righteousness apart from Jesus. Burn all that. Get rid of it. Romans seven twenty four. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. But there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. O ye of little faith, why do you doubt? Let's pray. Father, I know uh, we are constantly, constantly tempted to turn our eyes away from our Savior and toward everything else. If there's one thing the devil desires, it's that we would turn our eyes away from Jesus because he knows if we look and look and look at him, not only Will we experience his love and his acceptance and his forgiveness? But also, the more we look at him, the more by your spirit we'll find ourselves becoming like, becoming like him. And the more we become like him, we'll, the, the less we'll look at ourselves because Jesus was the most selfless man who ever lived. Help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus and to look full in his wonderful face that the things of earth might grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And our closing hymn is number 481, which is Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Let's stand as we sing, 481.
texted a preacher friend after church this morning and asked him how his sermon went. And he wrote back to me, I think I almost preached the gospel. We're always trying to almost preach the gospel. That's, it's such good, good news that we will never exhaust the depths of it. That's the point. Now live in the light of that gospel and leave with God's blessing. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you all. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.